Romanos capítulo 8 y versículo 18. Gracias, amigo. Dios te bendiga, hermano. Chapter 8 for you who don't speak in tongues and have the gift of interpretation. <laughs> Chapter 8. Lord, speak to us tonight out of your word. Great and mighty things that we know not of. To know your heart and your mind. In Jesus' name, amen. We looked at last week at verse 17. Last part, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And remember that faithful saying over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul makes a note, and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11, this is a faithful saying, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And Jesus said, if you don't lose your life in this world, you won't gain it in the life to come. In 2 Corinthians 5, it makes note that there is a reasoning that happens within people that are born again, that if one died for all, then all should die to no longer live for themselves. There is just that logical, reasonable heart of saying this is the only logical choice of lifestyle to be made. Now, from time to time, we do things, and we're just going about doing it. And one day we ask the question, why are we doing this? And as Christians, I think we need to come to that place constantly to reflect, to say, why am I spending my energies this way, my time this way? Does it really make sense in weighing out eternity for me to be living my life in this way? And that is definitely a work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're spending a lot of energy on something that's futile. Does it really matter in the long run? Is this really the way I'm supposed to be spending my time and energy? Is this what God wants or is this something that was passed down by my parents? Is this just something a friend of mine got me into and I've been doing it for the last 20 years? Why? Um, I met a man years ago. His wife divorced him. His kids won't talk to him. But he bought this house. It's about 5,000 square feet. And everywhere he had these trains going. Knocked holes in all the walls, you know. Through the entire, the entire house was a miniature train set. I think, I think it took like a half an hour to go all the way around the track and come back to the first point. Incredible, elaborate, just tens of thousands, maybe over a hundred thousand dollars in tracks and little people and, and all of this. And, and, you know, the guy just loves to bring people over. It just sort of blows their mind, you know. But the question is, why? You know, you got all these little plastic guys standing there with pills and, you know, firemen, and it's like, okay, now what? Well, you just keep adding to it, you know, and at some point you tear it down, you rebuild a section, and it's just hours and money, and I mean, it was just craziness. And there has to be some degree of that in all our lives, <laughs> maybe not to that extreme, 
but things that we have to say, hold it. Uh, is this the way we're to be living? And the Lord makes it clear that if you've reasoned correctly, then you understand there is a life that you're living that if you were only living on earth, it would be stupid. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. He makes it very clear. If we are Christians living the Christian life and there is no eternal life, he says, we of all people have lived in vain. If there is no eternal life, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, let us go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So the Christian lifestyle is lived in such a way that the dividends are not here on earth. Now, no doubt there are wonderful built-in blessings of just living the Christian life. There's an intimacy and relationship. There's a joy in the Lord. There's a peace from knowing Christ and knowing that we're saved from our sin and the guilt of the sin. So I'm not saying that it's, it's, um, it doesn't pay to serve Jesus. It definitely pays to serve Jesus. But I'm saying from a human standpoint, looking at our lifestyle, we are not winning at the humanistic game. You know, trying to get ahead in the corporate game, trying to amass more wealth, trying to make our life more comfortable here uh, by money and prestige and the cushier job and whatever it takes. We're not in that game. For us to live is Christ. And we will make choices for others constantly. We will make choices to benefit others, to bless others, to serve others, to help others, and we come in second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever we come in. We're not getting ahead in the comfort game. We're not getting ahead maybe in the financial game. We're not getting ahead in maybe the promotional game at work. But we are being daily a witness. We're daily being a blessing. We're daily being a servant. We're daily because of our character. We're gentle and lowly of heart because we have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. We are a blessing. We're a salt. We're a light of the world. And so it benefits us because we know that we're spreading spiritual knowledge as well, hopefully, as eternal values on everybody we're around. But far as just the non-Christian looking at our lifestyle, he would say, you're making dumb choices. If you were, you know, not so honest, you would be promoted. If you were a little more dishonest, a little more sneaky, you would do better at this sales, salesman stuff. Don't be so honest with your clients. Just tell them what they want to hear, get the sell, get them to sign on the dotted line and, and push it through. I know one gal who worked for a major bank here in town, and her boss said, here's a book, Xerox it, and we're going to use it for our training seminar and about 50 employees. And it says right on there, you cannot duplicate. <laughs> and she said to her boss, right here, we just got to go buy 50 books. And he goes, no, I can't, I'll never get that through. It's real expensive. They're asking way too much for it. Just Xerox it. And she said, I'm, I can't do it. That's, it's dishonest. It's illegal. It's unethical. I cannot do it. And uh, he basically took it, gave it to another person to do it. And within three or four months, she was demoted. The person who had just been hired years after was pushed ahead of her. And the person that came in had no problem doing the unethical things that he was wanting her to do. She lost out here on earth. From God's point of view, it was a test. It was a test for greater glory, greater blessings. 
and she passed the test in flying colors. Now, if you weigh that out in a matter of three or five years, it didn't pay. It wasn't worth it. Man, I could have had that job. I could have had the, the office with the window. You know, I, I, right now I could be making twice what I'm making. I have an easier job. And, and, you know, that other guy, he left. I would have gotten his job. Instead, I'm still stuck where I'm at. And So three to five years, it would have been better had she gone ahead and been a deviant. It would have been better had she just put her conscience to the side and said, well, everybody does it. It's no big deal. It's only a few bucks. It's not that big of a deal. It would have been better. Now, if you weigh that out in a million years <laughs> or even 50 years, the day you die and you go to meet the Lord, it'll be the far wiser choice. Poorer on earth, less comfort on earth, um, less victory in a sense on earth, but spiritually, the gains are far, far greater. And I see people all the time, I hear stories all the time of people making choices. Talking to another brother this week, and, and basically, he didn't get a, a very, very, very good promotion because his boss said, I want you to take these guys out and wine and dine them, and when they come to town, go wherever they want to go and do whatever they want to do. And and at first he thought, well, that'd, that'd be fine. Take him out to eat. That'd be great. Get a free meal. This sounds great, you know. But all these guys wanted to go to the strip bars. And they wanted to go out and, you know, drink for five hours every night until they're you know, ready to pass out in their hotel rooms. And he got into this a couple of weeks and he said, I can't do it. This is, I'm not going to take him to that place. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. And they said, well, this is your job. He goes, well then I, I have to step down from it. And, of course, his boss was very angry with him, and he lost out on this world because he didn't want to take guys out and get them drunk and take guys off to places that he would never go as a Christian. And so he made a choice that cost him about 20000 a year and probably permanent harm as far as this company. He's not a team player. He's not somebody who's going to go along with all the other boys. He's an outsider. He's excluded. He's not one of the inner circle now because of that choice. Those kind of things will con constantly, continually happen, especially in these last days as things are getting darker and darker. So, if you suffer with him, then you will reign with him. And of course, these are definite testings as well from God. There's no doubt in my mind as I look at the scriptures, this isn't a testing that the Lord is allowing to come into your life to say, are you really going to follow me? Are you really going to do according to the principles of the word of God or take the easy out? I think of King David there where Saul was chasing him, unethically chasing him. He was trying to kill him for no reason. David had never done anything but bless King Saul, his father-in-law. But he's trying to kill him, and so he's fleeing from his life. And, and there, as you remember, the first time, out of all of those thousands of caves there at En Gedi, when we go there, we take a hike, about a mile hike, back through, and you can see all the caves where no doubt David lived in. And then we go to this incredible waterfall out in the middle of the desert. It's just unbelievable. It's about uh, 750 feet high, just this incredibly magnificent. It's like you're in Hawaii. Just nothing but dunes and sand. It's just, it's just fabulous. 
But anyway, those um, caves there, there's thousands of them. But it just so happens the one that Saul walks in is the one where David and his 500 men are hiding out. And the guys say, what are the odds? This has to be God. And, and there's Saul going to the bathroom. David leans over and cuts a little off it, corner off the garment. And then he's grieved over it. But all the guys are saying, let's kill him. Let's kill him. This is the Lord. And had David walked out of there with Saul's head, nobody would have questioned it. Saul's own kids were for David. Jonathan, his daughter they had married, Micah, was for David. The soldiers were for David. Remember, he, you know, Saul definitely should have went out and fought against Goliath. But instead, they, Saul let this little tiny shepherd boy go out. Here's Saul with armor. He's the biggest, the tallest, the strongest. He has a spear. He has a sword. The other Israelites didn't have metal. He had metal. So metal for metal, experience for experience, height for height. It was obvious Saul was the one to go to battle. So these men, no doubt, lost a tremendous amount of respect from Saul. The people, the country as a whole, loved David. David, Saul killed his thousands. David killed his tens of thousands. He was a greater national hero than their king Saul. But David didn't. Time went by, and there David comes down into the very uh, camp of another situation years later, into the camp of Saul. And there as him and Abishar are, are stumbling around, they realize everybody's in a supernatural sleep. And there David and his men are talking over King Saul. And he says, just let me take the spear one thrust. He won't fill it. He won't wake up out of his sleep. David, wake up. Can't you see this is God? People don't just fall asleep like this. Everybody's in a deep, deep sleep from the Lord. And David said, I won't touch him. When Saul comes out that second time and David says, look, here's your spear and here's your water bottle. You know, whoever's telling you that I'm out to hurt you, they're lying to you. And Saul says, I know now that you will be king after me. And I also know that you are a great man and you will do great things because of what you've done today. It was clearly a testing from the Lord whether or not he would submit unto God and to his time. Now, let me tell you what that spelled out to David. That spelled out 15 years of fleeing for his life. A choice that could have been over, caused him 15 years of comfort and ease by just immediately going and being king, immediately. Instead, it was 15 years of waiting on the Lord. Also, when he came back after those 15 years, there was another seven and a half years of civil war where he only ruled over the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And it wasn't until seven and a half years later that David finally took over as king over all of Israel. 22, year, 22 and a half years detour waiting on the Lord. Let me tell you, we can make things easier for ourselves if we lean on our own understanding, but we will not grow in character. And we will not be obeying the Lord and being as pleasing unto the Lord. And in the long run, million of years waiting, you know, looking at not the 20-year plan, but looking at the 20-million-year plan, we'll be ever so glad that we took that, as Robert Frost said, there's two roads in the, will, in the woods, one less traveled by, the other one well paved. I'll choose the one less traveled by. Well, the road of denying yourself, taking up a cross, and following Jesus is the less traveled road. So if we are willing, 
then we will also be glorified together. We'll, and we'll reign with them. And in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We talked about that last week. And in verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject in a futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans, labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption of the redemption of our body. In verse 24, for we are we're saved in this hope, but the hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So first of all, we need to understand that God is making it abundantly clear to us that we are in a fallen world. And in a fallen world means that we will not always see victory. And if you want to do things God's way in a fallen world, you will see less victory than more victory. We often love the whole concept, you know, of David killing Goliath. And we say, Lord, let it be that way every single time, all the time. But it's not. A matter of fact, often the Lord allows Goliath to kill David and just bring him on home. And we have to understand that God's concepts are not necessarily the way we see things. In other words, in our mind, you know, we have the heroes. We have the guys who have the supernatural strength and they always bring us victory. And, you know, just as the villain is tying the maiden upon the railroad tracks, you know, and the train is coming, you know, but deadly do right, you know. He will make it there in the nick of time and untie her and just take her out of the way just as the train rushes by her and, you know, he get, gets a big hug and kiss and they get on his horse and go off into the distance. And we say, that's God. That's what God always does. He often saves us at the 11th hour, but he's always there to save us. And what we find in the scripture is that is not the case. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. Paul first paints the scene that we love and know very well. We see in verse 30, by faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe, even she had she received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me to mention Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, also David and Samuel, the prophets, all these wonderful victory stories, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. You know, we love Daniel getting thrown into the lion's den and the, the lion's mouths are shut and he just sleeps on those guys all night. <laughs> Quench the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego getting thrown in and only the ropes burning off and they're coming out alive, even though the soldiers who threw them in get burned up. 
there escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, period. By faith, others were tortured. They were thrown into the fiery furnace and burned up. They were thrown into the lion's den and were ate, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking, of scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. Notice now there in verse 37 and compare it with verse 34. They escaped the edge of the sword in verse 34. And in verse 37 it says, and they were slain with the sword. Notice how it can go either way. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, not very comfortable. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Listen to this, folks. They did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. On this earth, they did not get their victory. Did they get victory? Absolutely. Ask any believer who dies one second after he's dead. Are you bummed? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm totally bummed, you know. I'm in heaven with the Lord, you know, for all of eternity. Yeah, this is a real bummer. Um, I don't think so. So, again, we have to remember, though, on earth, it looks like defeat. On earth, it looks like there's no victory. Oh, why didn't God just, you know, blow out the fire? He can, and he has. We know the gospel... The Apostle John, they tried to boil him in order, oil, and he wouldn't boil, tradition has it. And that's why they put him on the island of Patmos. Daniel was saved out of the lion's den. But how many tens of thousands of Christians, if not hundreds of thousands of Christians, were devoured by the lions and the wolves? As you read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. Incredible torment and torture. Being starved to death. Christians that they would put a cage with a rat in the cage and they would tie it to their body, the cage. They'd tie the cage to the body with the door open to the Christian's stomach. And they would say, you have time to denounce Christ. If you'll denounce Christ, we'll take it away. And of course, the rat would get hungry and just start digging a hole right through the Christian, eating up his stomach. Um, incredible persecutions. Um, ripping them, tying them to horses and ripping their body apart. Um, if you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's an unbelievable the way Christians were tortured and died in, in horrendous ways. And so we know that they're suffering. Jesus in John 15, turn there if you would. There in verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, then they'll keep yours also. But if all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And let me just ask you this. Did Jesus look victorious in his death? 
But he was victorious in his resurrection, but only 500 people were there to see it. And now we know it by faith, and we also know it historically. There couldn't be any other way Jesus came out of the grave. But nevertheless, it wasn't a victorious thing. And so the world looking on, they didn't see this victorious death of Christ. And look, look in chapter 16, verse 1, however. These things I've spoken to you, what? That you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Did they do that to Apostle Paul? They sure did. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. They think they're pleasing the Lord by killing you. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I have told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So he's saying, I'm going away from you. And let me tell you, it's not going to always look victorious. They are going to look like they're winning, but they're not. David had this same struggle over in Psalm 73. Turn over there if you would. Just looking at naturally in the world. Notice there the first 24 verses. Look at verse 1. Actually, this is written by Asaph, uh, David's worship leader. And he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. He almost walked away from God in disgust. For I was envious of the boastful or the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. Talking about the wicked. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against heaven and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and the waters of a full cup are drained by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who always are at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. I wash my hands in innocence. I've been serving the Lord, and it's stupid. I shouldn't have been serving God. I should have been more worldly wise instead of doing things the way God would have me do them. And in verse 14, For all day long I have been plagued. I chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. So he says, you know, I was told as a child to serve God, to do things God's way, always do things the Lord's way. And then I grew up and I, I realized there's guys that are fully mocking God, fully not serving the Lord, and it seems to pay. I'm doing God's will, and it's not pain. They're total disobedience, and it pays to just live a humanistic, disobedient, ungodly life. And that's what I observed. And I tried to figure this out. And it was just too painful for me, because it, basically it, I had to draw the conclusion, serving God doesn't pay, and there is no God, and he doesn't care, and he's not doing anything about the wicked being wicked, and he's not helping the righteous for being righteous. And so when I came to that conclusion, it was just too painful for me to continue because to give up God and to go live this worldly life, but I've already spent so much of my life serving God, I shouldn't have been. It was stupid of me. 
But then in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in a slippery place as you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as an as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As your dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you will despise their image. Verse 21, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fell, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. In short, he's saying this. When I was like an animal and just looking what was on earth, it doesn't pay to serve God. But then I went into the sanctuary and I saw God and I saw things from an eternal perspective and I just felt totally grieved that I ever had those other thoughts of saying it doesn't serve to... Per, to the, it doesn't pay to serve the Lord. It absolutely pays. Now, we can remember being little kids. And we remember turning eight years old or nine years old, thinking, wow, somebody 30 years old, man, they're so old. <laughs> they're ancient, you know. And we couldn't even conceive being 30 years old. And, and, and then we got into our teen years. And we thought, man, did life go by quick? And then all of a sudden we're 18 or 20 and, and we thought we'd never be driving and now we're tired of driving. We thought we'd never get out of high school and now we wish we were back in high school. We, we couldn't wait till the day we got out of the house and now we wish we could go back home. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and your kids are going off to college. And the next time you blink, you're holding your grandchild. And then the next time you know it, your grandkids are having kids that are going off to college. And then you realistically realize one day, gosh, I'm 58 years old. I've got maybe another 15, 20 years. And how much of that's going to be in good health? I mean, how many healthy years do I have? And then one day you're 65. I'm depressing you guys. Sorry. I, <laughs> man, everybody's just sort of dropping, going, oh, man. Give me a gun. Let me shoot myself, you know. But one day you're, you know, you're, you're 65. <laughs> and... Half of your friends are dead. <laughs> the others have had a procedure. And then you're 75 if you're still around. And you're spending most of your time worried about the kids putting you in some place, you know. And you're watching 
all your friends now walking around, you know, trying to find the softest uh, yogurt they can find in the mall, you know. And, and the other half are calling their nurse mama. And, and it comes down to the you, you stop and you realize life is, is already biased. It's already gone. It's past. And you realize what a vapor life really is. Now, I think all of us, even if you're not 75 years old, have lived long enough to realize 75 is going to come before you know it. And so we can look at 75 years and say, naked we came into this world, naked we go out. And we know that. And we know it's not going to matter one bit when we're 70 years old, whether we have a Mercedes or whether we have a car that will just get us from here to there. And life is but a vapor. And so here again, we can be like Asaph and say, man, when I looked around the world, I'm not getting ahead and serving God doesn't seem to pay off. I wish I was a little more worldly wise. I wish I was a little more dishonest. I wish I was, you know, a little more selfish and, and not given so much money away, but held on to more, you know, not, not have spent so much time helping other people and spent more time, you know, doing what I wanted to do, you know, and these type of things. And you start thinking that way, but then you see eternity. And to realize in a moment we're going to be standing before God. Only one life soon will be passed. Only that which we've done for Christ is going to last. And so we come back to the place to realize that it's not going to be victorious. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Rejoice when they persecute you. They persecuted everybody like that before you, knowing your reward in heaven is going to be great. And so... Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, it says in verse 12 of Matthew 5. And so we come to that place to realize, yes, I understand to live on this life is not to necessarily live a quote-unquote victorious life. I understand to the world around me, I may not get ahead. Now, God makes the rich and God makes the poor. God could very well make you rich. Now, to me, that's just a greater testing because now it's, it's that much harder to keep your eyes on the Lord. Jesus said the rich get into heaven is like a camel getting through the eye of a needle because the security of riches are just so incredible. The comforts that riches can bring you are, are opposite of faith and trusting in the Lord because I don't need to trust in the Lord. It's hard when you've got thousands of dollars in the bank and you sit down at a mill that costs you $15 to really be thankful. Because it's like, I could eat out every night the rest of my life, and I can afford it. Or, you know, to spend 15 bucks is like nothing to me. And to be thankful for it, there's not that deep thankfulness. But when you realize you've got another week until the paycheck, and this is, might be your really last good meal, <laughs> and then outside it's beans and tortillas, and, and the last, ga last uh, can of Spam is still in the shelf, and you don't like Spam, and you're wondering how you're going to make it the last four days before the next paycheck, you're thankful. And there's a deep thankfulness, and there's a deep faith and appreciation of going, Lord, you're, you're so incredible. And so turning back to Romans, for us who are, Walking by faith, we are being persecuted. 
to those who are truly living a godly life, you are not friends with the world. The world loves its own. You're not the best pal down at the workplace. And in verse 19, it says this earnest expectation, this anxious, the word literally anxious expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And so we cannot wait until we see it's all worthwhile. Once it's all worthwhile, we know it. You know, that would almost help, you know, like Paul, if we could be translated into heaven to see what's coming and then to come back and to say, okay, whew, I, I know what I'm, I know. So now we, we're in faith. We're like, unlike Thomas, we can't see. We just have to believe. And we can see the pictures painted in the book of Revelation and in the prophets of the glorious kingdom to come. There we see the ten thousands of saints singing before the Lord, rejoicing before him. We see that tree of life. We see the prism city where it's just uh, crystals with all multicolored prisms. There's the sun there as Christ himself. There's a sea before the throne of God, the seraphim and seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is around him. No pain, no suffering, no sorrow. Um, we can see these glorious things to come. And we're just like, wow. Man, I can't wait for that day. But there's this expectation just to be in our brand new bodies. The word revealing there in verse 19 is the same word revelation or apocalypsis, the unveiling of the sons of God. Now creation, by the way, has been subjected in futility. Remember back in Genesis 3, he says, cursed is the ground because of you. And because of that, it put all of earth into a spiral downhill Right now, currently, every single day, six plant and animal species go extinct. Now, 30 years ago, I remember hearing that, it was 20 a day. So it slowed down quite a bit. But there has always been at least a half a dozen, if not a dozen or more species of plant and animal life going extinct ever since we have been able to have the knowledge worldwide to count it in this century which is pretty phenomenal when you think about it. But before man sinned, man, earth, animals were in a beautiful harmony. And what a glorious place it was. Everything doing what it was supposed to be doing. Not irritating, not injuring, not hurting. But everything was blessing. We see that in the millennial period. Turn over to Isaiah 11. Isaiah chapter 11, another scene we're going to see one day. We're going to see that Adam and Eve scene again in the millennial period when the earth is renewed for that thousand years after the tribulation period. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatlings together and little children will lead them. Radical. And in verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze. And then just imagine out in the field seeing cows and bears side by side grazing. And as you know, bears don't normally graze. <laughs> and so it's going to be going back so animals aren't going to necessarily even be killing animals. Their young ones shall lie down together. Can you see a little calf and a little bear cub laying down together? playing and then sleeping, taking naps together. And then some little child walking by, 
crawling on top of both of them. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, you know, playing peekaboo with the snake. And the weaned child shall put his hand into the viper's den. You know, oh, I got it, I got it, you know, reaching down in there and pulling it out like a little kid pulls a hamster out of a cage. We have a hamster, and my son Tracy, you know, is like, ah, it's crying, holding in the corner of the cage, and he's down there grabbing the thing, you know, and (laughs) then we have this little ball, this little plastic ball, and the hamster cruises around in his little plastic ball all through the house, trips people out. It's pretty funny seeing this little rat in this little round plastic thing walking through the house at will. And she'll not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. It's, you know, it still blows my mind when I go to SeaWorld, and there is this giant well. And there's these people communicating with it. You know, it's coming up. This thing that in the wild with just one bite, gone, wetsuit and all, you know. One bite, swallow, you're done, you know, and still hungry. But here it is, rubbing on its tongue, rubbing on its teeth, telling it to swim around and then laying on top of it, having it go down under the water on its nose, and then coming up out of the, out of the air as the thing just shoots up out of the air, flying in the air, sort of like, you know, with the ball. It just blows my mind. And then to see him do it with dolphins, riding dolphins, a guy with one foot on the back of a dolphin, and then with a, you know, holding on, riding around. What's the millennial period going to be like, guys? It's no wonder to me when you look at the serpent talking to Eve. They were talking to all the animals. I think they had radical communication going on. We see people talking to animals today. I have a little tiny chihuahua, and that thing is so smart. And yes, he loves Taco Bell. <laughs> no joke. He, uh, my son had a Taco Bell burrito in his, in his backpack, and he unzipped it and got in there, and he was munching on the burrito. And uh, we caught him. It was the same day he also got down. It was during Christmas time. He got down a whole box of chocolates. For two days, he was... But what was worse is he drank some gasoline. And he ran around our house like three, and then he just lit, just killed over, and we thought he died. But you know what happened? He ran out of gas, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> the last one wasn't true. Yeah. The last one was not true. But anyway, this little dog is so smart. And he, can, he fully communicates with us. But you think about the mind of God. You know, as you look at these great, you know, they got these giant sperm wells we discovered not too long ago. These giant wells that can go down 1,250 feet into the ocean. We don't even have submarines that can go down that deep. It would literally collapse. It's 550 pounds of pressure per square inch. We have 14 pounds of pressure square inch on, uh, at sea level. So you can imagine the pressure. We couldn't even begin to go down that We can't make submarines that can handle that kind of pressure. But yet these things are just diving down. These giant wells. What, what about all these other sea monsters that we see in the book of Job, the Levitham and the Behemoth and so forth that were there? 
and, and to see it again. Just, I was at a, a zoo in Hungary, and Hungary the zoos are a bit different because it's sort of an interactive zoo. You know, it's like a little tiny fence, and there's a big giant um, animals. I mean, it's just like this is dangerous, you know. But you know, they don't have. It's not the same as it was over here, and so. We were right there next to these giraffes, and it's just like this big old head comes down. I'm feeding it like this, and it's eating out of my hand. I'm looking right into its eyes. It's just, it's just phenomenal. You think about all the various creatures that we're going to see and be able to interact with, but then it blows my mind too because you know you have all these microscopic little creatures that the eye can't see, but they have little heads and little tails and and little legs and. He's going, God, you, did, you blow my mind. Now, we know amoebas today are harmful. <laughs> but they're only harmful because we're in a fallen state. What incredible thing must an amoeba do in a world that's not fallen? What about fleas? In a fallen world, they're irritating to us. Just like a lion is scaring, scary to us. But in a world that's not fallen anymore... What kind of benefit do these fleas have? You know, that's enough right there to make me want to be right with God. Just to find out about ticks and fleas and, you know, what's going on, God? When you made these things, what did you design these things for? And uh, right now, the creation was its infutility. The word futility means it's not able to finish its course. It's not able to do what it was meant to do. It's not fulfilling its purpose. It would be like you having a a race car that can go 550 miles an hour and you deliver mail with it, (laughs) going 15 miles an hour from house to house. And that's as fast as you ever go. And that's that's the concept. So all of creation is not able to fulfill what it was supposed to do. Everything's sort of limited, and it's never able to complete its cycle. And of course, we see that with man, don't we? We see it constantly. As soon as people experience enough life, have enough information, can really now do their job adequately in an incredible way. You know, they're 70 years old. They're finally, the wisdom there, the experience is there, and then their health starts to fail. And you're going, man, at the time they could really run a country well. At the time they could really run this company well. At the time they could really start digging in and accomplishing a lot. Now their memory is fading and their health is fading and and they're not able to do as much. And so we see that even with man, the futility of it. But creation is filling the groanings. Now, I might add that we're not in the New Age movement here. And the earth is not our mother. And uh, trees aren't our brother and sister that we need to hug. And uh, all of earth was created for man. Trees were made to cut down to make houses. It's not a living being that's trying to talk to me if I'll just listen, you know. Um, And earthquakes aren't because it's upset because I have too much pollution coming out of my car. Um... It's all a part of the flood and the tectonic plates that have 
now in the movement of the earth. The Bible talks about the year that the, the earth shifted and moved. And that movement's still going on. The Bible would never say it stopped. As a matter of fact, it's clear in the Hebrew that that's the year it started. And we see that the earth is still moving today. And the Bible said it would. And so, again, um, the earth is groaning. That doesn't mean earthquakes and tornadoes and famines and these kind of things. But there is an understanding that it's not completing its mission. And it knows that it can. And it also knows that there'll be a time when it'll happen again. The creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Now, we as human beings are the only ones created with body, soul, and spirit. We alone are eternal. But much of creation has a soul. A soul is our will. The soul is our thought processes. Our soul is our emotions. The soul is also um, where we are grieved when we say something wrong or do something wrong. And you see this within animals. If an animal does something wrong, it's grieved. I had my nephew was bit by a big bull mastiff when he was five. He went to get the bone and hand it to it, the dog, and the, he thought it would, and the dog just sort of took over its wild side and growled and ripped my. Uh, nephew's cheek open. And that dog never did touch that bone again. Fresh bone. But that dog grieved for three days. Just laid in the bushes and moaned. Wouldn't drink, wouldn't eat, just moaned. My great-grandfather had a little dog, and uh, it had been with him about five years. And my grandfather died. That dog never ate or drank anything else and died two weeks later. Just missed him so much. So, Animals have souls. They, they can be rebellious or they can be obedient. They can feel joy. They can feel happiness. They can feel sorrow. And so much of the animal kingdom senses that it's smarter than we're able to communicate with. It senses that it has more of a purpose. We hear all the time of dolphins saving people, killing sharks, and dragging people to shore. Um, we've seen uh, countless stories of dogs throwing itself in the, in the front of danger and saving the life of its master or its master's kids. Um, you see these various stories. So they have a soul, they have a will, and, and what beautiful creatures they are with a body and a soul. That doesn't mean they're spirit. And it's again what the New Age movement is saying. They are spirit like us. And much of the New Age movement says, actually it's a spirit of somebody who died before that's now living in them. And uh, no, one spirit, one life, then you stand before God. There isn't reincarnation that goes on. There's nothing to prove it. The Bible definitely says nothing about that. The Bible says it's pointed to live once and then to stand in judgment. But the creation itself is here for man. And you think about it. God made these beautiful creatures that are soul and body for our enjoyment, for our, to serve us, to bless us. And then that's it. They are, they are dead. Now you say, does that mean my animal's not going to heaven with me or whatever? I don't know. Um don't want to get you mad at me, you know, little foo-foo's not going to be living with me, so the Bible's not clear. There are definitely animals in heaven. We know that there's horses that we're riding down out of the sky with the Lord on uh, to return to earth on. We're all going to be mounted up on horses coming back, and so we know there's at least horses in heaven, and uh, Mr. Ed's going to be there, and <laughs> don't know where your animal's going to go when it dies. Um, 
don't want you to get you mad at me, but I don't think animals are going to heaven. I think they're uh, soul and body. They're not spirit, so they're not going to. There's not going to be life after death for them. But he goes on to say that they also know a time's going to come where creation's going to be able to go its full cycle, do all to its fullest potential of what it was originally created to do. And we know that the whole earth creation groans and labors with birth pangs. Again, the concept of birth pangs is what? Pain, suffering, but then life. And so the earth is hanging in there because it knows life is going to come. We as Christians are hanging in there because we know life is going to come. So we right now are living, all of earth and also Christians, we're like in a permanent state of giving birth. And so when the pains of this world are on you and you're aching because of rejection from your parents or your family or somebody from the workplace, you're suffering with pains because of your corruption and your sinfulness, you're hurting because you're not obedient to God as you ought to be, and you have these pains inside of you and it hurts, just remember, it's not always going to be this way. Hang in there. As soon as the pains are over, what happens to a woman when the pains of childbirth are over? There's a sense of, they don't remember the intensity of it because they're ready to have another kid. And, uh, well, sometime later. <laughs> so I read. No, I, it was very painful. I, you know, when my wife was having kids, you know, it was, it was tough. I mean, twice I had to sit down my Big Mac and try to t coach her. And, and then my back was killing me. Oh, leaning over talking to her. It was, it was tough. I had to have her rub my back the next day. I was just, that was really, really tough. And in verse 23, and not only they, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Um, again, the first fruits was the, the sacrifice they gave, the beginning of the wheat harvest, the beginning of the barley harvest. And they here at the New Testament understood that right after Christ died and rose again, that they were going to be the first generation to be raising from the dead to be with the Lord. And so they knew that. And Paul knew that. He says, we're going to be the first to go to heaven. But you know what the Bible also says? That we, there's two best times to be alive. One was during uh, the, the early church to get to be there, to be a part of it. But the second best time to be alive is at the coming of the Lord, to be raptured up, to be with the Lord. And so we're at the best time to be alive. Exciting time. The Lord's coming back. I, I don't believe that many of us here will ever see death. We're going to be translated in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. We're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And so, but even though we also groan within ourselves, this isn't, by the way, a negative groaning. This isn't like somebody died and I'm groaning about it. This is a groaning of expectation. It's more, it's more like the horse wanting to take off in the, in the race and, and there's the blockage right there. There's the gate in front of it. It's this groaning going, get out of the way. Let's hear the trumpet blast. I want to go, I want to go. And, and that's sort of the groaning we have now. It's not... Like, oh, bummer, we have to be alive another day. You know, oh, bummer, you know, I can't go to be with the Lord right now. Bummer, maybe I'll just kill myself and just go to be with the Lord right now. There's not those foolish type of groanings. It's a positive groaning going, man, it's good to be here, to be bearing fruit for God's kingdom. But man, oh, I want to go be with the Lord. And, and so it's a positive groaning within ourselves because we're eagerly waiting for that adoption 
of the redemption of our body, to be in that brand new body. And again, to make it clear, Christians, our hope is not something that's going to happen on earth. And this is where, again, I think there's a tremendous damage today within the health and the wealth gospel movement, where they're telling everybody, you're absolutely going to be healed. It's just a matter of you having enough faith. Folks, that's not what we see in the Bible. We see that everybody's eventually going to die. We see awesome men of God dying of illness. There's Elijah who raised people from the dead, but yet he died of an illness. And now you say, well, he lost faith. I've heard um, health and wealth gospel preachers say Elijah lost faith, and that's why he died of the illness. It's not true, because the Bible also says after his body already turned back to dust, that some soldiers, pagan soldiers, were going by and as they were going by, they were going to dig there in the cemetery to bury their friend who was wounded and now died. They saw the enemy coming. They didn't have time. They opened a tomb, which happened to be Elijah's. And when they threw this man in, he immediately was raised from the dead when he hit the bones of Elisha. And he raised from the dead. What's the Bible telling us? There was plenty of power in them bones to, to keep Elijah arise. The reason he died was not because of want of power. It, the reason he died, because it was God's will. How was it God's will for him to die? Of an illness. And again, we're perfected through suffering, it says in Hebrews. And there were some things God wanted to do in his life that through the suffering of his physical body unto death, God was able to work in him. And so we don't have any hope on this earth of saying, man, you know, once I win the lottery, you know, or once, you know, my kids move out, or once I get married, or... Uh, once I get that new job or once I can move, you know, get enough money and move to Oregon and get my acre and a cow and, you know, then, you know, I'm going to... We have no hope on this earth. Our hope is in heaven and in heaven alone. And let's look, concluding tonight, at a couple of passages. Turn over, first of all, to Peter and then we'll go to 2 Corinthians 4. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, In verse 13, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and what? Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you, when? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. When does your rest come? When is your hope fully going to be known? When is it all going to become? When we see Jesus Christ face to face. Until then, we are going to experience with all of creation you know, like the race car that can go 550 miles an hour and we're going 15 miles an hour delivering mail. We're always going to feel like we're always limited that the expectation of what we desire to happen, to live holy, to be pure, to do all of the things we want to accomplish and do. It's not going to happen on this earth. The fulfillment is when we're face to face with the Lord. And then finally tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, 
This tent is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. But if indeed, having been clothed, we shall be found we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. So our burden is not bummed out at this earth. I'm tired of fighting the sin. I'm tired of fighting with non-Christians. I'm tired. No. God gives us grace to live on this earth. God gives us strength to live in an ungodly, perverse generation. And we should never say, man, I can't wait till I get out of here. That should not be our saying. The Bible says in everything give thanks. That we're to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And we should always be saying, Lord, give me another day to witness to at least one more person. Don't take me home yet, Lord. I want to lead at least one more person to you. God, let me live another day. I want to lead at least another 500 people to, to you before I die. Lord, please let me be more fruitful. and let me. So our hope is to stay on this earth, to be more used of God. But yet at the same time, we also want to get out of the sufferings of this world and further clothe that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us of his spirit as a guarantee. So if some of you have a fear of death, all I say to you is you're normal. It's, we are born into this world with the understanding our body should live for eternity. And we have that sense. And so if I were to grab your head and dunk you under the pool right now and you just let me drown you, there's something wrong. Because we're naturally, we fight it. We naturally fight it. Our natural ability God gave us is to stay alive as long as we can stay alive. And so to say that Christians are all people who just want to die and go to heaven, that's not true. We don't want to die. We want to go to heaven. <laughs> But we don't want to die, and we don't want anybody else to die. We want people to know Christ and to live forever. But when we are at that point to go to be with the Lord, God's Holy Spirit will walk us hand by hand. He'll walk us into eternity. And many of you have seen people who know the Lord take that step through the curtain to the other side. And uh, it's a glorious victory. It really is. And we're sad because we miss them and we want to be with them, but we also have a sense of rejoicing that their suffering is gone and now they're to be with the Lord. And so if you're afraid of death, you don't have to be. Corey Timboom asked her dad, she said, I'm afraid to die and, and you know, what's it going to be like? How, how am I going to know? Am I going to be ready? And she said, Corey, he said to her, Corey, when we go, on the train, and we're going to go to another town. When do I give you the ticket? And she says, right before we step on the train. And he says, so with God. He'll grab your hand in a very unique and a special way, just as you're going to die. And he'll be there with a very special way. And I've seen Christians, and some of you have too, who it's a beautiful experience when they're going home to be with the Lord. Uh, God has grabbed a hold of their hand in a very special way. But until then, we can say, oh, to be with the Lord far better. But now we love life. We want to stay alive because we want to bear fruit for God and to lead many, many more unto Christ. And may God make us that kind of witness. Let me pray about that now as we close. 
Lord, we ask that you would stir us up to love and good works. And Lord, you would prepare us to be greater witnesses, greater blessings in this life. Lord, we desire to be more of a witness. God, put words in our mouth to speak to people in our neighborhood. Open doors to talk to people about you at work. Lord, help us on the campus and help us in the gas station and in the grocery stores that we would never, ever leave one opportunity undone. Lord, help us now, whether it's with tracks or with just a special word. Lord, help us to live as if this were the last day of our life, delivered completely for your service. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.